Hello, how the tech are you? This is our weekly tech show on Echoplex Media, where we complain about uh, tech stuff in the media. Not really. Sometimes. I, I like to complain about AI stuff, but uh, I am historian Matt. I usually talk about tech news and science news, and today I got a bunch of tech news, a couple, a couple tech news stories. The first one is... Stability AI lets artists opt out of Stable Diffusion 3. So uh, this is kind of another in our series on the generative AI generative art. I'll talk about that a little bit. There's some controversy there. And the second one is a new thing for uh, AI. And in this case, it's sound recording. But uh, you can make your noisy recordings sound like pro recordings with Adobe they're with their new tool. Uh, and that's what I'm going to talk about. So the guy with the pink mic, what do you got? All right. I am HK Perrin and uh, I'm a software engineer. So I talk about software engineering news and this week I have a real big one, at least for me, like this is big effing news. Svelte kit 1.0 came out. Uh, and if you are into like web development, you'll definitely want to hear this. Even if you don't use SvelteKit at all, uh, even if you don't use Svelte at all, like it's big news. And I, I think it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna be probably one of the most, uh, one of the most liked front end development frameworks, uh, because I've been using it personally and it's really nice. So I'm going to talk about that, uh, over to the guy with the nice mic. Yeah, um, I'm Dave. I'm the producer of this show and all, I guess, all of the shows on Echoplex Media. I'm going to talk about a thirsty Google data center and uh, a man baby banning links to competing websites on uh, his website. Oops. All right. <laughs> I, I don't get a star wipe. Anyways, uh, so my first story is Stability AI lets artists opt out of Stable Diffusion 3. So Stability AI is a company that made the Stable Diffusion, which is the AI program that, you know, everybody's been using to generate images. I don't actually know all the companies that are using it as kind of their back end. Uh, but uh, Stability AI now plans to let artists remove their work from training data set for Stable Diffusion 3, the third version, obviously. The current version of Stable Diffusion was uh, learned to generate images from a large data set of images scraped from the internet and importantly without permission. And uh, this has been kind of a controversy because they're using it to generate these images. They're actually making money off these images that were, you know, trained. The AI was trained with stuff artists put on the internet that weren't, that they didn't give permission to do any of this stuff. They're not getting any money for it not cool but uh now artists can go to the website have i been trained to figure out if their work is uh in the data set and have it removed so i'll have a link the link's already there in the show notes so uh check it out if you want to deal with that but uh you have to go on yeah, i'll website put it down in the description search too. for your images it seems to be search individually for your images and then you can mark them as hey uh, i want these removed and lastly, there doesn't seem to be any verification process to confirm if the person requested removal of these images actually owns the images in question. 
So if somebody were to request every image to be removed from the data set, I'm sure that might uh, cause some problems. What do you guys think? Like critical support to whoever goes in there and finds every image ever and gets it removed from the data set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I don't. I think it just like shows all the images. I don't know. I haven't played with it, and I need to see if my, any of my images are on there, my paintings or stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I, as an artist, I mean, I don't sell that much. I'm not famous or anything, but still, it, it seems really un- uncool to use my work without acknowledgement without payment you know and they're they're making money off of it it's not cool yeah um i think it's cool that they're allowing you to request that your work is removed um and as far as like legality goes i have no idea how this should work like should there be some sort of like if your stuff is in the training data like should you be compensated for that i feel like that should be like minimum uh in terms of like how we proceed legally yeah i i would think that would be required i think uh there's some stuff like the european union has some different thoughts on that uh um i'm not sure if some of the stuff is actually legal in, in europe if there's and if they're scraping images from people in europe who've posted online that that could be a big problem but um so far we it this is all legal gray area. Yeah. Like I could imagine someone, you know, having a business where their whole business is I will collect a bunch of images from a bunch of artists, uh sell the data sets to you know, these companies that want to do training and then pay the artists. Yeah. Based on like, you know, what data set they were included. So when you buy a data set, the artists get part of that money. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like that would be the, maybe the, maybe the right version. I don't know. Yeah. Well, what about like some of these artists who, you know, have made a name for themselves. They have a particular style. And now these like AIs can basically copy their style and somebody can put in, you know, make, you know, an image in the style of such and such artists and it does a really good job. But now like that artist is basically out of work. Like, should they be compensated for each image that is created in, in their style, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. seems like they would, should be more compensated more for that or something. But yeah, these things are, how would we determine like, was the AI, basing it on their style when it just created something from a generic prompt. Yeah. I mean, don't know about that. Obviously if somebody actually typed in, in the style of such as yeah. such artists that, that they definitely should be, uh, definitely should be some questions there, <laughs> but yeah. if it's just, you know, made something in that style from a prompt that didn't actually mention their name, what, what do you do? I don't know. Yeah. This is going to, I mean, this is all going to work itself out, I presume, but it's probably going to work itself out the same way it always works itself out. Where like the artist, especially if the artist doesn't have a lot of pull, they're not really going to, you know, they're going to get a few cents or whatever, and it's not really going to impact their bottom yeah. line. But the people, you know, that are making money on it are going to be able to be like, well, we are paying the artists. Right. Like, never mind. They're not, not even getting like 
remotely close to living wage. Right. Or even just what their art might be, you know, worth. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be like what Spotify does. Essentially. I think it's going to be in that, yeah. that range yeah. in that realm where it'll have to have been used millions of times for you to really see any money. Right. Yeah. Guess we'll find out. I'll move on to my next story here. So the next one is uh, you can make your noisy recordings sound like a pro with Adobe. Uh, this is Adobe's new free AI powered tool that cleans up noisy voice recordings. It's called Adobe podcast because it's kind of uh, marketed at podcasts. If you make a podcast and you want to clean up the audio and you for some reason don't have like these great mics that we have, uh, you can, uh, uh, clean it up afterwards. So it's free currently. I suspect it's Adobe. So I'm guessing they're going to make charge for it in the future. But for now, all you have to do is have an Adobe account. And I think that's all you have to do and go to the website. Uh, I have a link to the website, Adobe podcast in the show notes for anybody who wants to play with it, but it's basically cleaning up sound recording. You can clean up, you can fix up to an hour of audio or up to one gigabyte. And I assume it's the lesser of the two, whichever you either hit an hour first or a gigabyte worth file first. You're basically uploading the files to these websites and it will, uh, this website and it will clean up the audio for you. And it seems to work great. It, uh, uh, does a pretty good job. It seems like most of the time and some recordings that seem to work better than others. It will clean up any like background noise. However, with particularly bad recordings, that does seem to have a tendency to hallucinate results. So if you have some really <laughs> bad noise in the background, it could uh, interpret some of that noise as another person speaking, and it will actually like turn that into uh, audio that it that it interprets in, into your add it to your results. But um, what do you guys think? I think this is definitely going to become uh, a staple on one of those like uh, like ghost hunter. Oh yeah! Shows. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking they're going to yeah. shut it down when I start feeding it Madison Star Moon audio from her yelling about the clouds from her car. <laughs> they're just going to be like, shut it down, <laughs> shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I have to go through a lot of times when I watch uh, Board of Supervisors and City Council meetings, a lot of times just because people, it's regular people, they're not like media trained, they're yeah. not mic trained, and they go up and you can hardly hear them and the next person's real loud and whatever. And I do go in a lot and run uh, run like a, like a noise gate and uh, compression on that to kind of try to even it out and get rid of some of the background noise. And I'd be curious to see how this what this sounds like versus if I go in and do it manually, if this is like putting like, I don't, I'm not, I don't do audio like processing professionally, but people who do, is this going to be a thing that's going to put them out of a job? I'm going to guess no, but yeah. I think that for beginning podcasters or whatever, this is probably, they're probably going to be inclined to use this versus paying somebody, even somebody just on Fiverr or whatever is going to end up out of a job. I've had people try to pay me to, you know, do something with their podcast and then they send me like their audio and I'm like, I ain't doing that. And this <laughs> Adobe product isn't going to give them that response. So <laughs> yeah, instead I'll put like voices that weren't there. In the audio. 
I, I think ghosts. that's a lot of fun. That's going to be the fun part, actually, is like, what is Adobe saying to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just my opinion. I don't know. I think that the the thing about this is that doing this kind of audio processing is like as much art as it is skill. And I don't know if this is going, if the, you know, if we're there yet to where it's going to be able to clean it up because they, we've already had something like this. If you've ever used something called levelator, it applies uh, DSP to your audio and tries to kind of even everything out. And it's not great. I have a feeling the Adobe one is going to be better just because it's going to, it's like web-based. So it's going to have a lot more, uh, processing power available to it plus as more and more people use it the data set of like audio that goes in is going to get better and um i didn't read the article but i presume there's also a way for you to give feedback like if you're if it did a bad job or whatever there, there's probably a, a yeah. thing you can click or whatever you're like hey this didn't do a great job actually and if that isn't there it should be yeah um it did say in the article but um it and there's a lot of speculation of what's going on. It seems to be using the AI to, to pick out the, the voices, right? The, the, it said the voice frequencies, uh, and separate them out from the, the other frequencies and noise frequencies. And of course there's enough noise. It will misinterpret it and stuff. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty clearly like making stuff up, right? Cause like, right. So, you know, you can only do so much with like bad source audio cause yeah. there's only so much data there. You know, even if you strip out all of the, the noise, there's still only so much signal. So an AI solution, especially one that's known to hallucinate is going to be taking that, what little signal it can get from that and just adding what it thinks is like a reasonable signal that it would expect from from input data like that yeah. right because the worst background noise is actually when the background noise is in the same frequency range as the voice of someone talking if the background noise is you know like a low rumble all you need is an eq to get rid of most of it like you don't need you don't need advanced signal processing or if it's like some buzzing or like hissing that's up like high so the where this is going to come in handy but also where it most likely to hallucinate is in the bad situations for example, yeah. my voice, if the car window is open and like the, the buffeting sound is happening, people in a car have a hard time hearing me because the noise fills the same frequency range as my voice. And putting putting audio like that into there is probably either where it's going to be the most effective or where you'll get the funniest results. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll try it out. I'll definitely try it on uh, an hour of a uh, Shasta County Board of Supervisors meeting. Another reason they may <laughs> shut down the... Uh, project entirely yeah. <laughs> actually lately it's been orange county where it's been uh where it's been uh, a little extra turbo so i'll send them an hour of orange county and see what it see what they do with it my other question though Maybe. i wonder if when it does it like if let's say i put it in put the the audio i strip it audio out of video or whatever send it to them and get the audio back i wonder if it's going to mess up the audio video sync because of what it's doing yeah i don't know hmm. i assume it would s send the same length file with uh the, the audio in the same spot in the in the file uh as if it stripped it out but i, I get the interpret the impression that it's not actually stripping out the the voice what it's doing is listening basically listening to it, interpreting the the voice and then recreating it right without the background noise and that's how you end up with like hallucinations should we put out a second version of this podcast where we put our audio into this thing 
Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure audio is so good unless you're you add a bunch of excess noise to it, like it's going to be just fine. Well, no, but I mean, I think it I would make be fun. Some background noise. Uh, no, but I mean, I think it would be fun to release it and then the next day release it what adobe did with this podcast <laughs> maybe yeah we could try yeah yeah i mean i I don't mind it's it's almost no work we could do it just the audio not put it up no yeah. we have to put it up on youtube too but i can send the i can send the audio to, to hk i'll just strip it right out of the video so all you have to do is replace the audio i think we're going to do that this week and okay. it, now okay. it knows we're talking yeah. about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think uh hk you ready uh, yep all right so, as I was saying in the intro, this week something really awesome happened. Svelte Kit 1.0 came out. Uh, this thing has been in development for two years. Uh, and it is the successor to the aging Sapper framework. Sapper was the, the first framework made by the, the, the same guys who made Svelte, uh, Rich Harris and company. Uh, and Sapper was pretty cool. Uh, but there was a lot that Sapper was missing and Svelte kit was basically designed to, to be a much bigger solution than Sapper to solve a lot more problems. Uh, so what Svelte kit provides is URL based routing from your codes structure. So in other words, your web app, if you go to like slash blog slash, and then some like date and then slash, and then a string your code could have, you know, in the slash blog folder, your code could have like a, a, a file named slug in like square brackets. And then in that file, SvelteKit will just present that ID as, uh, as the, the variable slug, which makes coding, you know, uh, very complicated structures really easily or really easy. Uh, and with that, you also get server-side rendering. So SvelteKit will render a, an actual page just like the page that would be loaded with a, a front-end framework um, and send them the HTML for that page. And then on the client side, the client will, will do what's called hydrating the, the structure. Basically, that DOM structure will exist as soon as the page loads and Svelte will go in there and just kind of attach itself to all these DOM nodes that it should be controlling. And then once that, that happens, then you can start to do things like uh, navigating on the client side uh, rather than sending another you know, full server request from your browser. Uh, and SvelteKit is also really good at code splitting, meaning that when you go to a page, uh, like if you had that blog post page, if you have like another separate page called like slash login, none of the stuff from that slash login endpoint is going to get to you on that blog page. So all of that code for the blog page is only the code that's necessary for the blog page, which is really cool. And, you know, since I'm working on an, an, an email app, a web, a web email app, you know, webmail takes a, a lot of code and having, you know, almost instant loading on that on the inbox is really nice uh, another thing it supports is data points and page endpoints so you can have uh, a data point 
like if you have an API, you can just basically forward that data point to your API or just write that whole API in that data point. And that TypeScript file or JavaScript file that controls that endpoint will get run by SvelteKit when you make a request to that endpoint. Uh, so that is... Uh, you know that's really cool to have them in the same code base like that like right next to each other you got the page endpoints and the data endpoints and it keeps your code very well structured and well organized uh, another really cool feature i mean a kind of obvious one is that all of the page endpoints are written in svelte if you've never used svelte before uh, if you're using something like react or Vue or preact or angular Try Svelte. Svelte is amazing. Like you will try it and you will fall in love. Uh, I used to write Angular JS way back uh, in like 2016, 2017. I was writing Angular JS. I switched to React, and switching from Angular JS to React, it was like, wow, everything is so much better in React. And then when I switched from React to Svelte, it was like, you know, that same feeling of like, wow, everything's so much better but multiplied by like 10. It is incredible how nice Svelte is. Uh, and some of the really cool benefits of SvelteKit is like I was saying, client-side navigation is all handled in JavaScript. So after that initial server render where you your, your server is delivering the real HTML for the page to the, the browser, uh, and once the, the client-side JavaScript hydrates that page, uh, in other words, like loads the JavaScript and attaches itself to all those DOM nodes, then any link that you click, that navigation gets intercepted and all it does is make like some very small requests and change the parts of the page that it needs to. So that's the kind of stuff that, you know, web apps have been doing that for a long time, but it's really nice to have that just built into the framework and all you have to do is just write a link. You know, there's not any sort of like... Uh, advanced tooling that you need. It's just, you just write a link and it just works. Uh, and when when you have prefetching it enabled, which is the default, uh, what that means is when you hover over the link with your mouse, SvelteKit will start the the network call to, to get the data for that page, uh, which means by the time you've actually clicked on that link, chances are SvelteKit is almost done or even done getting the the information and it makes those clicks seem like almost instantaneous it is crazy how fast you go from a click to the page being rendered in a SvelteKit app especially for like static content that doesn't need to make like a database query it is insanely fast and it's really cool to see and if you want to see it you can just go to port87.com and on there, I have like a couple pages. There's like the about page, the contact page, and then the home page. And you can just click between them and watch how fast it changes between those pages. It is incredible. Uh, another really nice thing is that the, the server-side rendering and the client rendering is all done with the same library and the same code. So even like getting the data to be filled into that code 
it's all done with the same code. Like you can separate them if you need to, if there's some reason you can't run that code on the client and it has to stay on the server, you can separate them. And then what SvelteKit will do is it'll make a call to the server to get the ultimate data that's, uh, that's returned from that. Uh, so you can separate it if you need to, but if you don't need to, you can just have everything running on both the server and the client for server-side rendering and client rendering. And it is amazing how how well it works and how easy it is. Uh, another really cool feature is that SvelteKit was actually one of the first... Uh, actually, I think they were the first framework to adopt Vite. Uh, and because of adopting Vite, they now have like really fast hot module reloading during development, which is really nice. Let me tell you. It's like, you know, I'll, I'll be writing some code i'll make a change and i'll hit Control s and by the time i've alt tabbed over to the browser it's already updated on the page so it is really incredible how how fast the development process is with SvelteKit. uh and uh it also uses roll up so you get very small payloads very small payloads per page so like I was saying, if your page doesn't use much JS, it'll load instantly. And that time to first meaningful paint with SvelteKit can be incredibly small, especially for something like a login page where you haven't, uh, like you, you're not getting anything from the database. So that, that return from the server is going to be real fast and loading that login page, probably not going to require much JS. So you're going to have a page in like, a fraction of the time that some other server framework would give you. Uh, and I've been using SvelteKit since its first public release way back when it was like, uh, <laughs> you know, there's been like 300 iterations or 400 iterations uh, during its development. Uh, I've been using it since you could count them on two hands, you know, the iteration. <laughs> uh, so, you know, to see it, Come to 1.0 is, is so cool. I'm super excited for it. And I want to give a huge congratulations to Rich, Ben, Simon, Ignatius, Conduitry, and the entire rest of the Svelte team. Awesome work. Incredible job. Cheers. Any questions, you guys? Uh, uh, <laughs> I think you're the, <laughs> the only front-end engineer here. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're excited about words. it. And I'm glad it's speeding up some of your process on what you're doing. That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, it it would have been much harder to get to the point where I am at port 87, where now the web app is basically done. And all I'm doing is writing the mobile app now. It would have been much harder to to get to that point without something like SvelteKit. SvelteKit makes the development so much easier. It is such a cool project. Nice. Very nice. <clears throat> well, I guess it's my turn. Um, people don't think about this a lot, but data centers, they not only use a lot of electricity, they use a lot of water. Uh, they use a lot of water to cool the data center. Most of the large data centers, they use water cooling, not air cooling, because at some point, <clears throat> it's going to get so hot in the data center that the air cooling stops being efficient and the water water just works better for that the problem is google is using one fourth of all water used in a city called the dalles in oregon and um they weren't going to disclose this but a local media outlet had a big battle sort of with the city to try to get this information and 
sort of as a result of this this battle, it was a battle in the courts. Uh, Google has disclosed how much water their data centers, I think all of their data centers are consuming. And it's uh, just kind of stunning, actually, that one fourth of all the water consumed in some city is consumed by a bunch of computers that are uh, serving you data. I mean, I guess this is sort of what happens when the data centers move out of the big cities into like smaller towns. But then like if, if there's a drought in that small town, it just seems like seems like the data center is going to get priority on the, the water versus other people who need it that aren't data centers. And I was just kind of wondering, like, you know, I, I, up in Oregon, it rains a lot. So maybe this isn't a problem, but it isn't a problem until it becomes one. I don't know. Do you? Do you guys have any yeah. thoughts on this? Well, my first yeah. question that I that I don't understand is why is even if you're using it for cooling, why is it using the water? Like I thought that would be recycled. I can tell you exactly why. Being, what? I can tell you exactly why. Are they just releasing the steam that's created or something? <laughs> <laughs> so if it's built like Facebook's data centers, which I assume it is, because Facebook uh, made a lot of their data center design stuff open source and uh, a lot of data centers have started using it and it's good to be clear. Uh, it uses a lot less electricity this way, uh, but it does use a lot of water. Uh, basically the way they do it, uh, back when I worked at Facebook, I toured one of their data centers in Prineville, Oregon. Uh, so it's, I don't know how close that is to the Dallas, but, uh, you know, it's probably a very similar data center design. Basically what they do is, on one side of the data center, they have an air intake, right? Basically, for like several hundred feet, they have fans that intake air from outside. And then they have misters. You know, like those misters when you're sitting out on, on a hot day and, you know, they, they might be running these misters out in the, the public area to keep you cool. Very similar to that. Just misters blowing water into the air to make the air humid uh and then that air gets fed down into the cold aisles uh that humid air gets fed down into the cold aisles which are separated uh from the hot aisles so in in a data center it goes you know cold aisle then hot aisle then cold aisle and there's complete separation in between them uh with like solid walls and then Every row of the cold aisle has servers facing you on both sides. And the servers take air in from that cold row, the air that comes from outside that, uh, that's been misted, takes air in from that cold row and blows through the computer into the hot aisle. And those hot aisles then take that hot air, blow it with fans up to... Uh, basically the where it gets funneled into the exhaust. So now it's hot after collecting all the heat from inside the servers. Uh, and then they, they blow that air out into the atmosphere. So that's why it uses up water because there's, they never get the chance to regain that water. That water is only there to collect heat. So it's not like, I think Matt was thinking that they were using systems more like you might use like, uh, like, liquid cooling for your pc but that's not the case yeah it's not like a closed loop system it's not like you know you have these water reservoirs it's they're just 
blowing water into the air that they use for air cooling. Interesting. Yeah, I was. That would explain why they're using a lot of water, <laughs> right? Yep. You'd, and and you'd think that <clears throat> you'd think that maybe if this becomes a problem, they might start using closed loop systems. But then, I mean, closed loop systems present a lot of problems as far as maintaining the servers. Um, oh yeah. You know, maintaining one PC with a closed loop water system is one thing, but having a bunch of, even if it's like, well, if it's one giant system that goes through all the servers, that's a nightmare. And if you have a closed loop system in every server and like every server in the rack, now you have one more thing for the, the server techs to have to worry about. And I can see why they wouldn't want to do that because then you, you know, if something fails, maybe on the top of the rack, now there's water everywhere. <laughs> that's yeah yeah, that would be awful that's bad that's bad so yeah i i don't know i mean i guess they probably look for places with heavy rainfall that's probably one of the one of their you know they want heavy rainfall and generally cooler temperatures that's why it's that's why these are in oregon and not phoenix you know so (laughs) so but that's i don't know that's bad i think the you know, it, it was kind of, and it was kind of, kind of crappy that Google and the city were sort of in cahoots to like, not let the residents of the city know what was going on there. And I'm glad that again, yeah. stuff always gets broken by local news, right? Well, local news yep. took care of it. So, you know, just maybe, uh, if you live in a place and you, you have the means and you're interested, you know, subscribe to your local paper, have it delivered to your house every day. Cause they're the ones, uh, hitting up stories like this. It's not, uh, your Facebook feed generally and by the time it hits your facebook feed it's probably probably two truths and a lie so so i got one more story and we got more twitter apparently twitter abruptly bans links to all instagram mastodon facebook and other competitors but then as has been the case once people were like well this is stupid Apparently, they seemingly reversed the decision from an apology with uh, Elron Musk from Elron Musk. <laughs> they did it within forty-eight hours, and <laughs> it's uh seems a little weird. And I think it had something to do with people sharing links to that Elon's jet account on Mastodon. And I were I made a decision this week not to get into any of that on any of the shows. There's a lot of good reporting on that. You can check out um, Casey Newton's podcast called hard fork they they got they got into it and they did a really good job on it um but it just seems like seems like whenever anything goes wrong i don't know what went what wrong there i mean the guy kicked off somebody who was using publicly available data about his jet i hate when people track my jet by the way pisses me off yeah it's uh, terrible <laughs> and, and but then instead of like just I don't know. I don't know. Instead of doing something else, the guy's just like, well, let's just not allow links to any other social media site. And it's like, well, that's not how the web works, dude. (laughs) The web is supposed to work the other way. It's how the web can work on Twitter. If that's what Elon wants, like he, he bought it and he owns it. I just have a feeling that he probably, his phone started ringing from uh, the meta company and the meta company was like, "Uh, Hey, uh, we have some information on how many uh, times people link to tweets that on our websites and uh, you know, it'd be a shame if something happened to that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it shows that Elon's kind of worried about people leaving Twitter, uh, which well, is yeah. a good thing. You should be leaving Twitter. Like if you're not yes. already off Twitter, you should be leaving Twitter. 
or at least have a plan to leave because yeah. it's not going to get better. Um, the, the other, like the, the thing that kind of, the thing that kind of sucks is like, if you're doing what I'm doing, like trying to do media in any way, shape or form <clears throat> until something just awful happens and everyone in mass is like, we're out of here. Uh, you know, I can't not be there. Um, people who report on things like QAnon or extremism can't not be on Twitter. That's how, where you're going to get your information out to other people in that ecosphere. And <clears throat> I think the, a lot of reporting about Elon Musk and Twitter and, tw uh, and Tesla happens on Twitter. Like a lot of the negative reporting, mm -hmm. a lot of the bad stuff you've, we, we learned about, you know, I've learned about uh, Tesla, particularly I've learned from Twitter. You know, I learned that uh, Elon, who, when he bought the company was complaining about all the bots used networks of bots to pump up the Twitter stock and pump up certain cryptocurrencies. And I learned that on Twitter where the bots were. And like, yeah. I'm just like, re I'm just like r really concerned that, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the people in media are sort of the target of this guy. And as they tried to move to Mastodon or are some, some of them are on Mastodon shout out to all the people on the dystopia beat that I've been able to find on Mastodon. Um, and you if know, you want a whole list of, uh, journalists on Mastodon, we have that. Yeah, that that's, and there's all kinds of places, things available. There's tools you can use to find out. You can punch in your Twitter account and be like, who am I following? And then it will find them. If there's anything in it's it, the tools actually work really well. I mean, getting rid of links to Instagram on Twitter, like Instagram isn't really your competitor, Elon. Like maybe <laughs> Facebook is, but Instagram isn't. Instagram is like just pictures. Well, Mastodon definitely is. So I feel like, you know, if he was going to block Mastodon, uh, if he blocked just Mastodon specifically, uh, that would be a real bad look. So maybe he blocked Mastodon plus some others thrown in there. Because, you yeah. know, Mastodon is the biggest threat to Twitter right now. Yeah, because you don't ever hear about anybody going, screw this, I'm going to Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah, real fun. I've, I've, been, uh, I've been really happy to see all of the journalists on Mastodon recently. Uh, like some really high profile journalists on Mastodon, you know, breaking news on Mastodon, which is awesome. You love to see it. You love to see it. And the other, the other, the other good thing about that is if it's the one thing I like most about it is if it's like purely political news, a lot of people put that content warning on it. So if you're not interested in like purely political news, you just don't click through and then you don't see it. And I think that that's like a super responsible thing that a lot of people are doing. Um, of note, he didn't uh, ban like links to any of the things that Peter Thiel's working on or any of the things that Mark Andreessen <laughs> is working on. You know, for whatever reason. Ah, uh, <laughs> wonder why. <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> so, I mean, that's my story. I don't know. I, I, I feel like you know it's going to come up again. It's going to come up more and more. But I also feel like you know there are a lot of people doing a really good job, and you know maybe we'll try not to lean so hard on what's going on on Twitter on this show. Cause you know, there's just other people that have better information and some people even have access to the man himself to get him to say something stupid on the record. And we certainly don't have that. So I guess that's, 
I guess that's the show. Um, I think, Matt, is it your turn to read us out this week? Oh, am I reading out? Okay. I think it's your turn. I don't know. I, I think you should mention our uh, our our Mastodon instance. I'm going to put my hands up, and maybe I can put a, a link to it. Port87.social uh, right here. All right. Video editing is your passion. <laughs> <laughs> so that is our show for this today whatever whatever we're doing and uh if you want to again we're on echoplex media is our network and you can find out more about echoplex media on echoplexmedia.com and we got some live shows that go out on twitch.tv slash echoplex media well it's almost always going so you check it out anytime there's something going on and finally please give us money patreon.com slash echoplex we we love money. It's great. It really helps us out. And uh, that's it. Thanks. Thanks. Just just thanks. Just thanks. <laughs>